0: hello i'm chris's i just gonna get weird his um podcast co-host we normally talk about like comic books and that kind of thing um 25 went to ohio state um i got really interested in politics probably in college like a lot of people i feel like so i'm assuming that's why i'm invited to this that uh that uh that that a good summary chris works for me all right
1: Uh, I'll I'll let uh I'll let Maddie go next.
2: Oh good. Um hi everybody. My name's Maddie. Um I'm from Michigan. Met Chris here at Grand Valley in undergrad where I studied science. Um, and then I went to law school in DC and I'm out in Boston practicing at a firm here. Um so I'd say I've also been into politics probably since college, maybe late high school, but um yeah it's pretty hard to be in law and not also like kind of be it you know at least aware of what's going on in the world. Terrell stop! <laughs> um yeah that's that. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah I I if law school taught me anything it's that people can be so into the law and then incredibly ignorant of what's going on around yeah.
2: them. Yeah I honestly like kind of assumed that when I like got to a firm I was like oh surely like everyone will you know care about politics here like how could you not they're so like intertwined but that is it's not really the case
1: yeah just like someone said poverty was a choice well we're not gonna get into that today con law what a fun time Uh, I'll do I'll have Nagin go next cuz I'm just going in order of the screens I see online
3: Sure, hello. Sorry, I'm putting lotion on my hands because I've been washing my hands non-stop and they're so dry. <laughs> so, Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So, my name's Nagin. I uh, went to law school at American University. Um, went to undergrad at, where did I go? UCLA. And I don't even know how old I am anymore. I think I'm 26. Um, I don't know what day it is. And, um, I think I first got into politics, probably in uh, the end of high school, for sure, the beginning of college, I think my passion for it really ignited. But I think like in high school, I, I grew up in a very like conservative area in California. So um, a lot of the sentiment around like the Obama administration was A, very racist and be very incorrect. So I kind of grew up with a lot of people like that around me and, and just my family is very, they're very democrat. They're not progressive. They're just Democrats. So they're like, I would say like liberal Democrats or neoliberal Democrat. Anyway, not the point. The point is that I was just like, okay, I feel like there are more sides to the story than what I'm understanding and what I'm being fed in class, which I think was like a false narrative and Revisionist history and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I got into activism and now I am um, working at the public defender's office in Orange County, California.
0: That sounds fun. That sounds
3: it's fun. so fun.
1: <laughs> and last but not least, Terrell.
4: Oh yay! Hi, my name's Terrell. Um, I met Chris at Grand Valley as well, where I studied political science. I see you, Maddie. Um, and. <laughs> I went from Grand Valley on to work for an international fraternity for two years and then moved to Boise, Idaho to work for Boise State and um, in student involvement and fraternity for real life and all that jazz. Um, I think so for me, it's a little weird. Um, my political mindset and activism actually started around third grade, give or take. Um, mm-hmm. My grandmother watched CNN in nonstop for as long as I could remember. And I would be sitting with her, watching it, asking her questions about, well, what's this mean or what's happening here? And she would tell me all of those narratives and all of those things um, to the point that I would go back to school and my teachers would make fun of me. Well, not make fun of me, but make jokes about me having like my own talk show and me knowing about more about politics than they did. Um, And from there just kept becoming more a part of my life. So um, always being interested in what's happening and also challenging that mindset that you have to follow what your parents say. Um, I come from a very democratic background, but also more center left than left where I am a lot more on the left side and making arguments around um, civil rights, equality, um, gay marriage, all of those areas where my parents and my family necessarily didn't
0: um, jump on board at first. All right. Oh, well, they're, uh, they're all really good. I didn't mention my like job job. I was a communication major in college. I work in marketing, do marketing for a manufacturing company. Not super relevant, but like, Politics is not like a career thing for me it's definitely more of like a like a hobby you know but just uh covering all the bases All right Chris you're the uh, you're the moderator so you can take it away
1: All right uh so um so how much of that are we just are we just gonna leave that in and then,
0: then um I'll, just... I'll see how it sounds later I mean if it's okay. I might cut it a certain way. Because, but um, yeah, well, I'll have to take a look at it, That's fine.
1: All right, so, uh, welcome everyone to a quarantine podcast series. Uh, this one is gonna focus on the state of the Democratic Party, and I have brought on a panel of friends of mine who I know are politically active, who are politically vocal, and represent, I think, different interests and aspects of the party. Um, so I have with me my co-host from the Two Black, Two Nerdy podcast, Chris Davis. Hello.
0: Um,
1: longtime friends, uh, Terrell Couch and Maddie Claghorn, who I met through undergrad, through Student Senate, and Nagin, who I met through the ABA, uh, nothing but respect for my chair, Um, and so we're just, I'm, I have a bunch of questions. I'm going to let them do a lot of talking. I'll eventually jump in and say two cents or be a referee, uh, if need be, but I don't think I'll need to do that. Um, and we're just going to talk about how our perspectives, our experiences and our beliefs sort of shape what we think about the democratic party, um, and where it's going. I mean, I don't register myself as a Democrat couple people in here disagree, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just go on with that. So uh, my first question is to each one of you, what are the pillars of the current democratic platform? And if you don't agree with what they are, what do you think they should Jump in, the
0: water's fine. Um, I mean, I guess I can go first. So, I mean, in my opinion, I think the Democratic Party, in general, right now, when it comes to, like, what they're trying to push, in general, they're just like, we just want to be better than Trump, guys. And me, personally, I think the party should be more issues focused on, focused on things like healthcare, climate change, etc. So, I mean, I guess I would say that, like, Right now, I think a lot of like the mainstream energy in the Democratic Party is just solely focused on getting Trump out of the White House. I think, I don't think they have nearly as much of a focus on policy as I would like them to, if that makes sense.
3: I would have to agree with that. I think that there is this very defensive kind of um, kind of persona that the Democratic Party has taken on that's basically like, we don't want to be anything like Trump, so we're trying to do what we can to sound like we're still not super progressive because people don't really want to be super progressive. At least we see that from the endorsement of Biden and how all of that's going down. Um, but we also aren't Donald Trump, which... I think is a deviation from like what the actual supposed platform of the Democratic Party is supposed to be like. Healthcare is a right, and um, you know the that abortion access should be available for everyone, um, and that you know although the debate for racial equality versus racial equity hasn't really happened in the democratic party. They really do believe in like racial equality and diversity, you know, all those like buzzwords that I think they want to emulate. And I think that oftentimes they don't particularly do a good job at execution. And I think that's where I disagree with them because where we do kind of falter as a party is not, walking the walk we talk the talk sometimes but we talk the talk in a very like confused our messaging is wrong i think that's what i'm trying to say is that the way that we put the policy that we care about is very either in a defensive like we're not trump way and look at how we're going to tokenize people of you know different races and we're going to use them for their vote but then not actually produce legislation that really actually speaks to oppressed folks and speaks to people who need that legislation. So I I agree with a lot of the things they say personally. Do I think that they do a good job of doing it? Not necessarily. Do I think the government liberates people? Not really, but I think that they are a mitigation of the circumstances we
4: are in. So I was gonna jump in. Um, I would challenge that a little bit and question is that truly where the party is or is that the narrative that's being talked about through different outlets? So I do, think, I do think there's some truth in the fact that the party sees Trump as this existential crisis. But I do also think that that in itself is a policy proposal for them. So the party can lean on Healthcare and talk about the good work that came out of um, the Affordable Care Act and the actions that they took during this economic crisis um, and say, yes, there is this specter, if you will, that's hanging over every conversation that we have because he's in the White House. But our message is we want to reinforce something that he took away, very similar to how Obama had a conversation around this when it came to George W. Bush of we've seen where government can go and where government can go wrong and we wanna be the opposite of that. So I do think that there's an important distinction there. Um, At the same time, I do agree that the party is struggling to find its pillars again. I think there's a, a deep rooted conversation THAT IS HAPPENING IN THE PARTY OF HOW MUCH LONGER CAN WE TRULY BE A BIG TENT BEFORE THE TENT COLLAPSES ON ITSELF? Uh, HOW MUCH LONGER CAN WE HAVE ALL OF THESE DIFFERENT POLICIES COMING UP AND ALL OF THESE DIFFERENT PERSPECTIVES WITHOUT HAVING ONE CLEAR WAY OF SAYING THIS IS WHERE WE'RE GOING. AND I THINK THE ELECTION OF um, Wow, I'm just realizing how much time has passed. Um, the election of 2018 speaks volumes to that of the things that the House was able to bring the party together around, whether it be in criminal justice reform, um, electoral security, uh, just voter voting rights in general, there were all of these policies that they were able to do and say, here's how we're making some moves for America. But there was still this contention inside of, is this the way that we want to go? Is this a package that we want to support? Or do we just take each one individually? And the left side of the party gets this, the more central center part of the party gets this. Um, so I think those are my contentions when it comes to where we are right now.
2: Yeah, I... I'm on right, pretty much along the same page as you guys. Um, But I think that there are like two difficult things about seeing like the, the pillars of the party right now, because for one reason, pretty much everything Democrats do is like, has to be in response to something insane that Trump said or did, or is like on damage control or trying to like, you know, basically like rein in whatever thing he decides to say or do and so i think they spend a lot of energy on that and some of that's warranted you know i don't think that that can go like unaddressed i think you know people have to like call it out but i think the other difficulty that we have in like really getting a clear idea of what democratic pillars and values are right now is because there's just like so little unity among the party which i don't i don't know that that's necessarily like the thing. Like, I think that's great to have, like, a diversity of ideas and, like, lots of different ways to, you know, achieve these relatively common goals. Um But I think the, the, the hard part is that, like, we spend all this time squabbling about, like, the details of how to get it done, you know, when in reality, like, Democrats, I think, share the same goals. But it's, it's, like, sometimes hard to see through the muck of, like, all the different ways we want to get these things done. And, Democrats are really, like, complex voters, you know, they care a lot about, like, a lot of issues on, like, a lot of different levels, so, like, I don't know, I just think that we have a tougher time as a party, like, coming together and unifying, because there's just, like, so much that matters to us, and I'm not saying that conservatives, like, you know, whatever, are, like, simple-minded people, but, like, for some reason that it's just easier for that party to, like, give their loyalty to somebody and to look past other things, and we just, like, are not that forgiving as a party.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. what's what's the quote i think we talked about it on our podcast chris republicans fall in line democrats Democrats fall in love
0: yeah yep it's true it's true
1: um so um y'all touched y'all touched on um 2018 and how there was such a shift and how the democrats sort of everything we they do is in reaction to trump so in 2018, you ha- you saw that effect in the election, where the Democrats take back the House, somehow lost ground in the Senate, um, but Senate tougher, some- though. Yeah, yeah, but you 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 took ground. You had made strides with the number of women in Congress, um, number of women of color in Congress, the first Muslim women in Congress, um, and that's I think only. One well, of the first Asian American woman in Congress came from the Republican side, if I remember that correctly. Um, so you see this sort of uh, repulsion against Trump, and the Democrats take the House. But what have have they really done anything effective with their time? Considering that the Senate is still controlled by the Republicans, and Mitch McConnell is sitting on a mountain of bills.
4: I would say absolutely. Um, you think through the last two years that the House has been in session, and yes they pushed through a lot of policies that we all could have assumed wouldn't make any huge ground but I think to the last ooh, it's also weird saying this, the last government shutdown that we had it where normally the party itself is seen as the ones who cause it the ones who are fighting over the minor minor details around Medicare, Medicaid, and all of these social safety nets. Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party did an extremely intricate job to tether it to the Republican Party, specifically Donald Trump, and say this man who's in this house who's supposed to be doing the work for the people is so focused on income inequality and making it worse by giving tax cuts and tax breaks to this crowd and doing all of these little details that he is ignoring all of these bigger problems. And I I know just in reading the um, policy that got passed or the budget that got passed, the Republicans walked away with a huge compromise and not getting exactly what they assumed they would or what you could have expected if, um, the Republicans have both branches. So I do think to some space and some realm, there's room to speak towards the ability they had there to ensure that the budget went the way that a progressive movement might want. But at the same time, by taking ownership of the house, they've stopped the constant, some of the constant attacks on the affordable care act. They've been able to be more intricate and more strategic in um fighting against and pushing for better accountability of the branches. And I think that is a point that when you look at it at the end of the day, do you see it as an average average American? No, but it is important to see that those were key moments where the party was able to take the ownership of their role and do what they could to kind of stabilize the ship.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, their oversight function was, like, so huge and impeachment and all that. And I think that was, you know, one of their, their, like, shining moments, even though, you know, whenever, the Senate was never going to do what everyone wanted. But, um, you know, people can say that that was just, like, symbolic or whatever of them to go through the motions of impeachment, you know, knowing that the Senate would acquit. But, like, I think. That that will go down in history is like a, in a really important part of uh, the past few years. I think it would have looked really really bad if, you know, they just rolled over and, and let that happen and let that be the precedent. So, you know, for what it's worth, I think that was a, a good a good use of their power.
4: What did Nancy say? He'll always be remembered as being impeached.
0: Yeah. He's going to be remembered for a lot of things. True. <laughs> uh, sure. I feel like that's almost a problem with Trump, where it's like there's just been so many things and so many scandals. At a certain point, it just like morphs together and you like almost forget some of the things that he's done and you're like, oh, yeah. So, yeah.
4: Someone brought up Charlottesville a couple of days ago and it baffled me. One, the fact that it happened, but two, the fact that in my mind it seems so long ago when it was only a year. It's just so much.
0: Couple years, yeah, yeah. It hasn't been hasn't been that long.
1: Yeah, I I don't forget about Charlottesville not because of you know what he did, but whenever I do like an Obama impersonation, like the first thing I say is like how how hard is it to say Nazis are bad?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's yeah because was just all right. We're not going we're going to talk about Trump, but we're not going to talk about Trump.
0: No, I didn't mean uh, I didn't mean to take us off topic. I apologize.
1: You no, know, no, no, you're good um but for so in 2018 that's when the primary starts of sort of you know the one of 25 you know start jumping in but did the democrats make a mistake in not really rallying behind at least a few candidates so that it just didn't really turn into the circus that it became
0: Chris, you gotta do a volunteer victim. Okay. Uh <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um
1: So I th- I think oh I also Nagine like, said to me mean, she's having technical difficulties. Uh yeah, see if you can jump out and jump back in, again But and I can uh, I can
0: cut any like any issues too like when I upload the audio so it's not it's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, Maddie, you're you're going to get uh, chosen as the uh, you're getting cold called.
2: Um, I feel like you should be calling me like Ms. Clegghorn, like my old ass property professor would have done.
1: I mean, I could call you your nickname from students. We're good.
2: But... We're good. <laughs> <laughs> um... Anywho, was it a mistake to run so many people? Well, first of all, like, I don't know, like, who who are we in that mistake on if it was one? Like, you know, all those people chose to run. But um, I, I have mixed views on this because on one hand, like, I don't know, I like the idea of a lot of people in the ring to give their perspective and to... I think it's nice when everyone can see someone who they identify with or they I like when people can see themselves in the race that feels important to me um but we obviously have a lot of consequences from that you know for people who were looking for a somewhat not even a moderate candidate just like a a non-revolutionary candidate like it was it was chaos it was pure chaos we had no one no one knew who to vote for because no one knew who had a realistic shot because everyone appeared to have a realistic shot or at least like a lot of people did um and it, for me at least like that was sort of exhilarating because i was like i can vote for who i love rather than like who i know is gonna win because i have no idea who's gonna win um but i think that also contributed to what we have now which is like two old white dudes you know <laughs> so i don't know like Perhaps if we had not run so many people and we could just have backed, you know, one or two of the candidates that aren't quite as left as Bernie, then I don't know, perhaps we'd have some better options and not feel like we're settling for those of us who feel that way. It's me. I feel like I'm settling.
0: Same. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess I can go next. I mean, so as far as like so many candidates, I mean, all these people I think all genuinely wanted to be president, which is why they ran. You know, on one hand, it was nice in the beginning just to have different people talking about different ideas, but I think so many people honestly stayed in way too long because of their egos. And what ended up happening is that like There was just, I think, a panic amongst a lot of the electorate of who do we vote for. And then, you know, people are just literally like rolling a dice and then it's like Joe Biden. okay, And, you know, that is how we end up. That is how we end up with pretty much. I mean, the state of the race, if you can call it that right now. So. It was, it was strange. I think part of it was because, you know, in 2016, you only really had Hillary and Bernie. So I think this time they're like, okay, well, let's run a bunch of people to see who people really like. But I agree that, that, you know, in them staying in as long as they did, it just ended up, you, you just ended up having chaos. And you wake up and you're like, wait, so like Joe Biden's the nominee now? Like, how did that happen? Like, if you look, if you went back in time, you looked at like the 25 people and you thought like, I did not think that honestly, Joe Biden was going to get the nomination or I guess he hasn't officially gotten it, but you know, pretty much has. I would have been like, really? Like Joe Biden? So, I mean, I guess that's probably the biggest negative as far as the, um, having as many people as we did. Cause I think that. If the race was, I mean, if we had a smaller pool from the beginning and say someone like Joe Biden was still there, I think he would have been hit a lot harder in like the debates and stuff than he than he had been. And it probably would have been a little bit harder for him, I think, to rise the way he did because it kind of happened. He, Joe Biden was kind of able to hide and people almost like forgot about him. And then he just came out of nowhere. And it's like, wait, what? So does that, that answer your question, Chris?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that's going uh, I think it'll go good into this next portion talking about the election. So pretty much every major candidate has had some type of controversy or or scandal surrounding them, either uh, mostly about their past, but some of their actions during the election. So, you know, for Biden, oh, God, where do we start? um let's just say his uh you know his 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 wandering opinions and his grasping to uh obama saying you know you know the vibe so just vote and then also um his history of supporting racist policies and you know and i don't care if you're from that time you did it but uh kamala harris cop mala as twitter would call her um, Twitter Elizabeth was so Lauren,
0: mean to her Like oh my gosh
1: Yeah, she yeah. Didn't
0: her. Um,
1: Elizabeth Warren Both with The whole Native American Heritage claiming um, Being a Former Republican uh, Accusing Bernie of being Sexist
0: Don't forget the snake emojis
1: Yes the snake emojis <laughs> Her not supporting Bernie when she dropped out. Um, she didn't,
0: she still hasn't supported... She's right. not supporting anyone still.
1: Yeah,
2: Good.
0: yeah. So, that's how I feel about it, too. Uh,
1: Bernie not support... Bernie, um, I guess, being still in the race, I guess, is some type of controversy, but being accused of being sexist. Uh, well, Bernie bros, I guess, have surrounded Bernie and how they've treated people online. Well, certain segments of Bernie bros. And then... Pete Buttigieg being very shady in very different ways. Oh my God. Uh, So with these different criticism, controversies, or scandals, are they, are these legitimate gripes to have with these candidates? Are these uh, being, are these people being nitpicky on them? Are they trying to find a candidate that passes their purity test or, you know, been a lot of that going around so what do you guys think um,
4: so this one's hard because I also while you want to make one statement I don't think you can paint a broad swatch for each of those individual actions like Elizabeth Warren was the person I'll say on this um, podcast but she was the one I supported. But she did have some serious issues with her Native American heritage and saying that she had such a huge percentage when um, going through DNA tests and all of those things. Um, Kamala Harris had a history of being an attorney general, and for some reason that became a black mark on her that she was now too serious and too ingrained into law and structure to be um, a Democratic president. And now you go on Twitter and people are like, Wow, I really miss her. Like, I miss her voice at debates, or I like all of these things. And I, the reason I struggle here is I do think that Joe Biden has some issues. I think that he ran, speaking frankly, this campaign of, oh, look at my black friend over here. Like, I understand. I know where you're coming from. I know what you need because I, I was right next to Obama for eight years. And that, speaking as an African-American male, never went well with me. Never sat well, never made me trust him more, feel like he should have a space, but it did give that comfort of he knows what he's doing and he he can do something. Um, So I think the issue is as a party, as a people, One, we got to see the worst of our country during this primary. We got to see people attack a um, Indian African American woman for rising up in her state and doing amazing work. We got to see um, another female, two other female candidates, essentially be told you're amazing, but you're just not good enough. The first um, homosexual individual to run in a major party get vilified and demonized about his sexuality and inappropriate names came out out of that. And we just got to see such ramifications of everything that's been happening in the country for um, years. And as a party, I think there was a lot of space to step up and kind of take some ownership and say, hey, we're going to own where this person is, or we're going to change the narrative, but we were just, we just sat and watched or filled the fire because as a party, we didn't know what pillar we were supporting, which way we wanted to go, so it was just let it happen and see where we end up, and I think, speaking of what Chris said, that's how you end up with all these amazing candidates get burned down just because there's this one safe candidate that everyone can look at. Safe.
3: I... I feel like the game has changed when it comes to the way that social media and campaigns have kind of interacted with each other because when Obama ran for president social media yes it was still very um, widespread and folks use Twitter but I think now uh, there's like a different element of how to successfully use social media and like push your candidate forward and kind of air out the legitimate concerns that kind of exist and then there's this like very problematic other part of Twitter that also kind of combined they there's really no way to distinguish them sometimes because things get so muddy and I think because the game has changed so much a lot of the criticisms that weren't necessarily warranted kind of floated to the top and some floated to the bottom for instance um I think the criticism that Bernie Sanders is a sexist in saying that like a woman is not necessarily electable. I think that that controversy being on like every news station and, you know, being the center of attention for so long, I think that yes, it was a criticism that should have been maybe had like a conversation that should have been had, but it shouldn't have taken over like three questions at a debate and like, you know, so much airtime where Joe Biden, who's now been accused of, you know, assaulting a staff member or you know inappropriate behavior towards a staff member and the me too movement and times up can't even like write an article about it or like there's not the same amount of coverage granted you know covid and coronavirus are kind of taking over the news station so I I get that but I think some criticisms and controversies are legitimate and I think that we would be doing a disservice to ourselves and our communities if we didn't hold candidates accountable. But I do think that there were a lot um, of, of criticisms that were, that came from, like it was said, mentioned earlier, like a place of like pure unadulterated racism and like pure sexism and pure homophobia and, and just like overall like very um, xenophobic concerns that I think people had. So it's a, it's definitely like a moment by moment kind of analysis I think um and I think that we can't I don't think it's appropriate for us not to call things out when we see it but I do think it's appropriate to also call each other out when we hear the uh, like another person um in the party saying something that they shouldn't be saying which I don't know if there's enough of that you mm-hmm. know but
4: do you think that Warren bringing up the sexist comment is what made it stay in the news so much longer, or do you genuinely feel it was just because of Bernie Sanders?
3: I don't know. I think, uh, hmm. I'm not sure, because I think that it was a combination of both. I think Warren did a good job, in my opinion, of holding him accountable to what he said, and I think that he did a good job responding to it. I think that one particular debate that took place after they kind of aired it out they asked him a question he answered it and then they asked him again like did you say these things to her and I think like we already addressed it like there are certain things that I think like people don't address when you bring a controversy for instance I think Buttigieg anytime anyone would confront him with anything he would be like Thank you for your question. That is a very nice question. I also have experience answering questions oh and my here God. is the answer to my question. Like that, in in that particular instance, uh you know Warren said like you said this and he said, "Well, I did kind of maybe say something similar and if mm-hmm. I did say it, it's not what I actually meant." And so he kind of tried to backpedal a little bit. I feel like we kind of had this like understanding that there was some misunderstanding and we should have just like left it at that because in conversations i've had people are like you know i don't think a woman is electable in this race but i would love to vote for a woman it's a problematic comment but it is the reality i think of a trump america a trump's america is like this you know so i mean at least in my my experience and understanding of how politics works in a like very conservative very trump loving area no.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was just going to say, you know, the the Warren-Bernie beef was, it was strange just because, like, I feel like, you know, all the politicians say, like, oh, these are my friends. I think on a certain level, like, Warren and Bernie were actually friends. You know, they had known each other for years. They had worked together a ton. And it was just, I mean, honestly, it was really sad that they couldn't unify at any point. In the election, and like, Bernie people, you know, they some of them hate Warren, they think Warren's a snake, and then some Warren people don't like Bernie, and they think Bernie's misogynistic, and it's really a shame, because I think, honestly, if they had, like, I wanted the two of them on a ticket, I didn't really care who was at the top, but I wanted the two of them on the ticket, and it's just sad that, like, that's something that just couldn't have happened, you know, and... When it comes to like scandals and things like that, I mean, the media always wants a story. And whenever like anything, anything like that happens, it kind of has to be all over the news. And unfortunately, it can't be like a private thing that just two people have to just air out. And I mean, that's just the unfortunate, that's just the unfortunate things about like politics, you know right now is that anytime anything is scandal worthy it's it's gonna blow up and ultimately i mean ultimately both bernie and warren like they both had careers They'll both you know eventually go on and retire and do great things you know retire and whatnot it ultimately it's like the people who suffer because now we have this com- now we have this choice between like joe biden and donald trump which in my opinion is not a great choice to have in a general in 2020 and i thought I thought that we would just... I thought we would just be at a better place by now, and I um, I thought wrong, apparently.
1: So, uh, bridging into, I guess, Biden being the uh, nominee, because at least when I had this initial idea, it was just really the two of them, and it was right around uh, the Michigan primary. So, now we got uh, Bernie and... Uh, who hasn't officially dropped out of race, but pretty much, pretty much has. Um, so with Biden, uh, he's seventy-eight or seventy-nine. Uh, he is going to be a one-term president if he wins. So, who do you think is hit should be his running mate? Because presumably, they're going to be the leader of the party in twenty twenty-four when. Uh, if Biden wins, you know, he resigns, not resigns from office, but he doesn't run
4: again. So I would have said Cory Booker, but last debate he forced himself to have a female. So I will make the cautious assumption that it'll be Kamala Harris and I will follow that assumption with the feeling that because he chooses her, he will lose. Why do you say that? Um, I think it would be really hard for them to run as a ticket after the way she strategically prosecuted him for his voting record. Mm. I don't know if either of them will, even though they are friends and they do have a genuine relationship, it became such a moment and people that triggered some of that intrigue into his voting record of, oh, I didn't know he voted that way on busing, or how does he feel about race, that the attack ads, the comments, the questions will be so pointed against them at that point that they won't be able to, at least in my opinion, um, be ahead of it. It'll just constantly be there of, well, you talked about this and you've seen it, Shift, but how how can you feel that way? And then I think leaning on what um, Chris just said, he will if he was a one-term president. What does that then look like for the qu- questions that you have for your vice president? Of are they ready? Can they handle the job? And the way Kamala was vilified for her time as attorney general, um, the way people have felt about her, I question if any person who has ran right now will live up to that belief that they are good enough to be president if he were not to serve a second term
0: yeah i mean i guess the real question for like a general election would be who who does, who does joe biden need who would he need as a vice president to have a chance in the general or who would help him in a general I guess. Because I do agree that I think it would probably be Kamala, but I'm trying to think, like, does Kamala bring, you know, is Kamala going to be able to bring voters that Joe Biden wouldn't be able to attract on his own? I don't know. That's, the, that's probably the biggest question I have about that. I think that
3: Joe Biden's, like, best shot and, like, the person who would kind of soften if you will his like unappealing nature in my opinion would be Stacey Abrams because first of all she's like so cool second of all she is somebody I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party respect as a rising star she is not somebody who's tainted by this like federal politics kind of shenanigan circus that's happening right now and i think that she can bring to the table the kind of energy that the biden campaign is missing from young people especially um i do think that <sighs> I do think that any running mate that Biden chooses is going to have an uphill battle and they're probably going to have to campaign way more than any other vice presidential candidate because his image for so many young people is just not there. So um, I do foresee whoever the vice presidential candidate is to have to kind of do that legwork. And the only reason I don't think Kamala Harris would Um, I mean, besides the reasons that were already stated, but another reason why I think Kamala Harris wouldn't necessarily be um, the right VP candidate is because she is also very moderate. And I think that the VP candidate needs to be a little bit left of center in comparison to Biden in order to kind of harness the like full demographics of. Young people, people of color, and like especially women who feel like this entire race, especially recently, but the entire race has just been like, let's beat on women. Like, this is not okay. You know, like you're not qualified. You're not going to ever be president. You're not up to the job and all that kind of stuff. I think that elevating Stacey Abrams, who's overqualified for the vice presidential seat, in my opinion, but elevating her to that spot would be a really smart strategic move for. Biden, do I think she accepts a nomination? I don't know, but that's, a, that's I feel not like our, she'd do she, it. Yeah, I, would,
1: I, so. <laughs> I think I've talked to Maddie about this, and I, I think uh while I do like Stacey Abrams, I don't want her to be the nominee because I don't want her to be tainted by <laughs> Biden.
0: Oh my yeah. god,
1: let her not have to associate with him, like she, she can. She can do the convention, like the convention speech, like yeah. that would be fine, you know, and then, you know, in four years run and, and, and win or something like that, but I I, I don't well, want well, her. The
0: thing about Abrams, right, is that, like, her record is relatively clean compared to, like, a lot of the people that actually ran for president, so, like, the pro of picking her as a VP is that, like, she wouldn't really hurt Biden in the sense of oh my God, Stacey Abrams is the X Y and Z. She doesn't really she doesn't really have that, which is why I think she's been such like when people talk about like VP picks, she's always like up there, and you know people know of her, but she hasn't she hasn't done anything that's been like seen as super negative at least to the to the Democratic electorate, which is why you know I I think she would be a decent shot, but like yeah, if she runs with Joe Biden, then you know, say if she runs with Joe Biden and then they lose, well, then, you know, that part of that will be on her record if she tries to, you know, go for Senate or something like that at some point.
4: But she has one of, in my personal opinion, she has one of the, she's one of the worst choices for him because she, like y'all mentioned, she was a rising star. Everyone was looking at her saying she was a great option to potentially run for president. And she sat on The View and was very upfront and honest that she doesn't have the experience to do that yet she said that she needed another two three four years before she was truly felt comfortable being in that type of spotlight and i think she runs into the same issue that Buttigieg did of you have all of these people who have the experience who have the capacity to do a good job and then you select this person who has less experience For her, the issue is she straight up said that. So you pick her as your VP candidate, but you run into that problem of, all right, Biden probably won't be a two-term president, or he might not want to do a second term. Now you have this VP who you have to then question, is she ready? Do we want her? And you have the same thing that I think Kamala will run into all of these ads then surmount of she's already said she's not ready to take on this task. Did Biden make the right call? Is he even capable of being president because this is his VP choice? So I also would challenge that sphere or sphere um, of her running.
3: I think it's kind of interesting that she said that because I think our president currently is so unqualified that like mm-hmm. I I feel like she's overqualified in comparison. So and I think that women of color typically like downplay their accomplishments and i just i find it so mind-blowing that she would even think that she's not ready i mean that's personally i just think she's so cool maybe i'm a fangirl and you know like i'm (laughs) completely not thinking um in an unbiased fashion but i i can see that from a campaign perspective that would not be Mm -hmm. healthy
2: for sure, that's like so classic. The people who are probably best suited to sit in those positions and probably have the most qualifications think that they need to learn more. Mm-hmm. Shocking. <laughs> um, I I think on the vice president thing, that's like I could also see Biden pulling in like a young female governor or something. Like this is my bias talking because I'm obsessed yeah. with, that, but governor <laughs> Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, for example. I feel like she has kind of been pulled into the national scene lately. Like, she gave the response to the State of the Union, and then she, <laughs> I feel like, had the official national inauguration into the spotlight when Trump was going after her on Twitter and whatever. That was pretty funny. Uh, but, I, but, I know. But I, I mean, I could see someone like her who's, like, young and, like, well-liked in a swing state, and, you know, not... I think you're you guys are all right, like Biden needs someone who like is not tainted by like politics and like the establishment because like that's what he is, just so many people, so they need a fresh face who they maybe like don't even know yet because he needs he needs someone with energy, and I don't know, I could see someone like her being good, but I think the tricky part is picking someone who like you chris said to to pull in other votes that he wouldn't already get, you know.
1: I, I know I said I, we weren't going to talk about Trump, but I see, I feel like we have to because you brought up Gretchen Whitmer.
2: All right. <laughs>
1: governor, and, yeah, so uh, apparently something either we missed or I missed while I was preparing for that, this is um, a reporter asked Trump, and, and I'm reading quotes here, what more specifically do you want the – us us talking about governors to do. And Trump said, all I want them to do, very simple – I want them to be appreciative. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. You know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call.
4: Yep. I saw it happen live.
0: Yep, that sounds like I didn't see I didn't hear about that yet, but that sounds like something he would say.
1: I stopped watching his press conferences, I think, like on Wednesday, and I've been so much happier since.
0: I mean, the thing is, he is such, like, just a vindictive, petty man, and his whole thing is that, like, he'll, 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 he will, Trump will purposely punish states with governors and politicians that he doesn't like. That's what he does, you know. Obviously, like, he's racist, he's sexist, et cetera, and he likes to, in general, I've noticed that he likes to pick fights with women and minorities, so, I mean, it, that's typical behavior. That's all I can say. Hey, remember, Susan Collins and
4: um, Alexander both said he would learn something after the impeachment hearings, and yet we still have um, quid pro quos happening even to this day while we're in a pandemic.
2: Well, Susan Collins, you know, the expert on all things. Very reliable
4: <laughs> woman. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, But moving to the future, uh, so... i I guess our the scenarios are are very limited so you know the uh uh let's say trump wins which i think is more likely um he wins the democrats keep the house and but the republicans keep the senate how does the uh party counteract a trump with nothing to lose at this point because he doesn't have to worry about re-election already been been impeached once you know he'll probably he might literally say during his inauguration speech impeach me again um, again um, and then um, how does the party because not only do you lose to this man once you lose to him twice after all of this has happened how does the party retool itself to prepare for 2024 and whatever the Republican Party is in 2024
4: do they have to retool themselves? And that's what do they? <laughs> you you took two hard L's. I mean, you know, but it he, will be gone by that point. In theory, I do have fears that his son could run. This, yeah, yeah, Just him if he doesn't. But he's gone at that point. So you took two L's from someone that you significantly underestimated, but. You're not running against him again so do you just try again try to see if your message connects and maybe it was just the Trump factor
3: honestly I think the only way to recover from something like that is to avoid normalizing what just happened the last eight years um, and like I think the reframing of what government is supposed to do and like supposed to act like and diplomacy is supposed to look like and not starting wars with Iran on Twitter and you know um I don't even know like where to start honestly at like how many horrible things he's done or like ban people from a country just because of their you know national origin and just so many things so many things but I think that the not that we've lost our outrage a little bit but I think even on my own like my own perception of politics in this moment has normalized Trump to some degree and in the beginning of his presidency I was so outraged at literally everything he did all the time and it got exhausting and so I think a lot of folks like myself kind of lost steam a little bit along the way and I think the next election hopefully if we don't have to deal with a trump running you know a third time which would just be absurd but you know everything's on the table lately pretty much um <laughs> president for life uh so i think if we can if we can re-energize folks to get excited about something like you said you know democrats fall in love we have to find something to love again um and kind of I think we do have to find those pillars of where we actually stand, what actually matters to us, because at the end of the day, Republicans have the same thing in common. Majority white, majority old, majority men like that's literally the majority of them. They always have that in common with each other. And they can always kind of stand on that like we have this in common and we don't want to share our wealth. But I think Democrats don't know how to create this messaging or haven't done it necessarily the right way to be like party unity is important and let's not get in let's not get in the way of good to find perfect when perfect will never be or is very difficult to achieve in politics so i think we really have to be introspective before all of this happens because it's just going to be a hot mess if we're trying to figure this out the next election we're going to lose again but we have to there has to be some sort of energizing there has to be some sort of like coming together and reckoning with ourselves and like why is this not working? Mm-hmm.
4: I do think my fear then too, is how do what's the um, postmortem report look like for the party? Do, do they actually take anything to heart or do you see an exacerbated, civil war within the democratic party of do we care about the suburban mom who is working a job trying to take care of her kids being the support for her family or are we focused on the student loan ridden individual who just got out of college wants to go on to go to med school or law school but doesn't know if they can do it cuz they can't move like does it become a genuine, I don't a genuine class war of sorts within the party? Of 2018, we saw the house be won because suburban women showed up, showed out, voted. Healthcare was the issue. Who knows what the issue is going to be in 2020? Because every day there's something new, and I'm like slightly afraid of what April's going to bring because COVID. Um, yeah. But come November. Is it going to be that issue of all right? The Democrats lost. The suburban women showed up, but they weren't enough anymore. And now we need to focus on students, but we're going to drop off the suburban woman, or we're going to drop off the minority. Like, what does that look like for the party? I think that is my fear. Not so much saying there is a way that they need to retool, but a feeling that we are going to trap ourselves in identity politics.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's going to be our tricky thing: having to like create a space where everyone can see themselves and you know feel like they still have their voice in the democratic party um but i think certainly we're going to need to do some rebranding after you know all this all these years of trump i mean it's i i I don't think it's dramatic to call it trauma honestly like i i think that there's going to be like some healing and I think people have different views on what that looks like but at the end of the day it's got to be a party that people can see themselves in you know we can't do any of this like isolation rhetoric where people feel like you know it's not a party that represents them anymore that that's not going to work so yeah it's going to take some some new branding whatever worked in the the 2018 midterms the whole blue wave energy I'm like all for that if we can bring bring that kind of energy back I think
0: that would be awesome <laughs> I think a big problem, too, they have now, Democrats have now, is just the massive age gap. And, I mean, I guess when when the primary became between, like, Biden and Bernie and you look at the elections that happened, I mean, Bernie won voters that were under 45, Biden won voters that were over 45, and it really pretty much came down to older voters, didn't matter what color, what gender, they voted more. They voted more for Joe Biden, right? So the question Mm -hmm. is you have this massive divide now that a lot of it really is age lines where typical older voters, they tend to you know, be more center. They tend to support estab- more, quote-unquote, establishment candidates while younger voters tend to care more about individual policies and they tend to support more of the progressive candidates. So I guess the real question is, you know, as of right now, the reason why the establishment candidates are doing better is because older voters vote more. Will there be a time where it where the party is forced to become more progressive because the people, the, I guess the voters that are progressive now when they get older, I guess the question is will they still be as progressive as they are now? And mm-hmm. if they are, will there be a time and you know, will there be a time where the party finally does flip? Because I mean, the quote-unquote like anti-establishment energy it's I mean it's there and unfortunately it's in a weird place where there's not enough I think progressive energy on the democratic side for progressives to win a presidential election at least from what I see but there isn't But you still need those voters come in general. And, like, I mean, I'll be honest. Like So, for me, I was a pretty big Bernie person. My Twitter feed is full of Bernie people. My feed is all, like, never Biden, hate Joe Biden, never voted for Joe Biden ever. So, my question is, if you're someone like Joe Biden right now, can he do anything to get some of those people over at all? You know? And that's the... That's the real question because there's this issue now where there's a split in the party where they're in this issue where I'm like, can they win the presidency anytime soon? You know.
1: I, I want to respond to one of the things you said talking about, uh, will the voters that are progressive now be progressive when they're older? And my my response is progressivism shifts. It will the- shift.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah.
1: Because the entire political spectrum has shifted, you know, over the course of our lifetime. So, like, you would say when we were kids, the late 90s, early 2000s... Let me give you an
0: example. So, like, something like Medicare for All, right? Medicare Mm -hmm. for All is probably... One of the like mainstream, like progressive, like positions, which is like, hey, we're gonna tell these private insurance, you know, companies to go away. We're gonna have the government just run insurance, like you know, all these European countries. And you know, like say like Bernie, that's like his like main thing. Will voters now? Will voters now who support Medicare for all, Medicare for all when they get older? Will they still support? Uh, will, they, will they? Will they still support a policy like that? I guess is a real question.
4: See, I would, I would challenge. I don't, I don't know if I would say Medicare for all is a, like a strong point to being a progressive. I do think healthcare for everyone and seeing healthcare as a right is. But I'm not sure if Medicare for all is the policy that all progressives sign onto. Um, but I do think that's an interesting point. Of as our generation gets older, we will start falling into. The Medicare realm. Like we will hit the age where we will qualify and we will get those benefits. So if it doesn't happen before then, does our generation take on that, that entitlement and enjoy the benefits of it and see that maybe we should have fought harder? Or do we just, in a simple way, become complacent and say, yep, we got it. Moving on. That the our kids, our grandkids are the ones who can fight for it. I do think that would be really interesting to see uh, 10, 20 years from now.
1: Well, I mean, I think you look at our, our parents' generation, what was progressive or when they were around our age. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. ballpark apart and say the 80s. Um, like, you know, hey, we succeeded on civil rights, sort of. Uh, you have the... Um, LGBT civil rights movement sort of like picking up steam, but, you know, wow. So like the real progressive side of the Democratic Party are like, yeah, gay rights. And then other Democrats were like, "Uh, hold on, buddy. We're we're not there yet. And then, you know, it sort of shifted up until you have Overture behind for 2015, where it's like, yeah, okay. And then at that point, most of the party is is behind it. Um, And so as the Democrats go further left, and the republicans go further right the middle is sort of expanding so are we going to come to a point where we will have three parties where you'll have uh republicans moderates uh, if we want to call it that and then um the democrats or are both parties going to split and then we'll have four that's a really
3: interesting question and i have been thinking about this a lot mostly because Angela Davis just said that she thinks that we should have a third party of just progressives. And then my brother and I were having this discussion that we do every single day of politics, but we were like, what if the green party decided to like rebrand and then all the progressives were like, Oh, we're going to not be Democrats. We're going to go to the green party's new party. Like, I think that our political system is not built for multiple parties. And I don't necessarily think that that's a good thing at all, because I do think that we need multiple parties in order for everyone's issues to be addressed in a more specific and pointed way. Do I think over time this kind of shift will happen? I think that this point in time we are in right now is so polarizing and we're, we have so many differing views and opinions that I think that we would see that kind of shift if it were to happen. Like now it would be the appropriate time for us to, to like break off and have like a progressive party or like try at least to see how it would go. It's a very risky and dangerous thing, I think. And in a time where, you know political power needs to be more unified in order to succeed but i think like it's tough because i i still think that even with the presence of multiple parties that actually like the libertarian party and the green party that exists and you know this kind of offshoot of democratic socialists i think that we don't ha- like works our system is very much built in this like binary as it currently exists So it'll be hard for us to truly split up into parties and stay that way because I think people see the benefit of kind of coalescing even Mm -hmm. if we have, like, different views on the spectrum of how to get things done. It's a really – it's a fascinating question, though, because when I was studying this, I always was like, oh, no, like, two-party system is better for the country. But I actually kind of think that, you know – myself now as i've gotten more progressive over time i think a multiple party system would be really interesting i don't know but that's very cerebral i don't know if it's practical what i'm thinking in my head but i would think it would be very interesting
4: if you look at the history of the country we are primed for that next great split i always think about progressivism from Teddy Roosevelt's perspective. And that's when he broke off and made the Bull Moose Party from the Republican Party, which, blah, 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 blah. Um, But you move, what, 115, 120, give or take, years before that. And you had um, the Social Democrats, the Whig Party, like all of these things. So I do think we're, I do think, I don't know if this is true, just. In the country, and I might be making a broad generalization here, but we might be on the course to just one of those natural inflection points where um, the parties do have this moment of, yep, we need to separate. The reason I question if it will happen is the Tea Party started, what, 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. uh, and genuinely felt and thought that that was going to and be the moment for the first big chasm. And the Republican Party banded around it and made their platforms the party's platforms and brought them back into their their tent and made them work. And then you move into 2016 and you see Donald Trump come up and a lot of the party saying, this isn't who we are, we don't want this. He gets the nominee, he becomes a center of power, they jump on board, they follow, they move. I don't know... If the Democratic Party will do the same thing, I feel like the party itself is more willing to just say we can't come to an agreement. We have to. But look at what happened after 2016. Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders went head to head for multiple occasions and weeks and um, debates. And after Hillary Clinton lost, Bernie got to work with the party and set the rules that the party's currently operating on. So maybe they'll continue to do the same thing.
0: You guys ever hear about uh, Ranked Choice Voting? That would... Have you heard of that before? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ranked Choice Voting would, even if we just had that, would make things so much easier. Because you would avoid the whole, like, you know, the Jill Stein problem, you know, in 2016. Like, the whole, like, spoiler problem in elections. That would, like, Ranked Choice Voting would make it much easier for people to, quote-unquote, like, vote their conscience and still, like not, you know, not throw their vote away to, you know, whoever they didn't want to win. So, I mean, that would be a way to fix that issue pretty easily. Are they ever going to do it? Probably not, but that would probably be helpful.
4: Look at how it worked for Iowa, though. (laughs) There are a lot of problems with Iowa.
0: Well, (laughs) Iowa, they didn't have – yeah, they – yeah. I don't want to get into that. That That was a mess
1: great job uh so i want to shift focus from this to a slightly different scenario where you have trump winning but the democrats take complete control of congress and so now you're able to block his federal judiciary appointments which i feel is one thing that people have not really focused on you know trump is stacking the courts and that has that's going to have ramifications for 30, 40 years. Um, so you, you take back the Senate. Um, and so then you are blocking federal court, you're blocking Supreme court. Uh, you get to, I mean, you pass legislation and then he vetoes it. I don't, you don't probably not have the votes to overturn it. I mean, they might, depending on what the bill is, but how does trump shift if he shifts at all to try to be a smidge more uh diplomatic and then how does the party work with trump to get anything done i'm gonna have to cold call someone
2: I mean, I feel like I I just have like a pessimistic view. I just, I don't think they do. I mean, I don't, I don't think that Trump is going to give anything and I don't know that a full Democratic Congress is going to necessarily do anything to, like I just can't see either budging like in this climate. I just don't I don't know in what practical way they can i don't know that reaching across the aisle exists in trump's america like i don't know that that's a concept that anyone like wants or even like just has the ability to do i i don't know i don't have a good answer
1: but when obama reached across the aisle in his last term because he sort of had to because you know you have a republican congress um i think he got a lot of flack for that um i can't really see Trump doing the same. I can't see Trump getting that same flack because his supporters would be like, "Oh, look how presidential he's being." And the do nothing Democrats are, you know, stopping him from helping the country. So, um, does if the Democrats decided to reach across the aisle—not on everything, but like on a few issues—do mm-hmm. they get flack from that from their? From the progressives or the further left of the party, from you know reaching across the aisle and having, let's say, more centrist or moderate policies
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I I think if that results, you know, in bills being watered down and things not being as as progressive as they want, then that for sure could have, you know, ramifications. Um, but I I don't know. I'm like sort of of the belief that people need to like get on board with like the small steps, you know, like if we can't overhaul the whole system in, at once, then we need to we need to be okay with taking two steps forward instead of just staying in the same place, you know, forever.
1: Anybody else or else I got shotgun questions. So I'm just interested to in see what you guys think.
2: Yeah, let's hear, him. what else do you
1: okay, guys Uh So first question, Democrats, Take control of the uh, of all of Congress, and they put up a proposal to extend expand the Supreme Court from nine justices to eleven. Do you support that? else says no. That's
0: a good question. I mean, you see, that's a dangerous game. Well. The thing is, I mean, it. De- the thing is, something like that can always be abused. That being said, I mean, the system we have now, as far as the courts go, you know, was abused with like Merrick Garland, you know. So it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question, Chris. It did used to be eleven at one point. Did it? I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, it. Michael Law guy. I'm sorry.
1: at one point. And then it's been as high as 11, I believe. Mm-hmm. I,
2: yeah, I think that's like, yeah, I I think that that is like, to me, that's equivalent to like changing the constitution. And like, I, I don't know, I think that's a dangerous game, but like, I don't know, Republicans aren't really playing by the rules anymore. Like, watch Democrats, you know, part of me is like, are we being naive and living in our little like worlds of academia where? You know, we need to just, like, keep our morals and, you know, not not do anything that's going to hurt anybody's feelings. But I don't know. I like to think that we can, like, keep some of our goals intact. Like, I don't have to rewrite the rules just so we can win sometimes. Like, I like to figure out how to do it within our bounds Yeah, I don't love that.
4: Also, if you stack the court in during his presidency, unless you – pull an extreme of Mitch McConnell, he's going to fill those voids.
1: They'd probably pull it. For four years? Uh, possibly. I mean the thing is you just have to imagine whether um you know RBGs lives throughout all of it. Uh, um so,
0: yeah it's not at it's least not happening
1: I, or you know like if the democrats take uh the all of congress and they come back and you know like the last year of trump's presidency rbg either dies or she retires and then they just stall like mitch mcconnell did like that's perfectly possible um you
4: better uh, knock on wood for saying that though
1: I, who says i didn't um <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe, you know, I'm giving her time to hire me as her, you know, second ever black clerk in her judiciary career. Oh, my God. Uh, but, uh, um, so you have that. So, okay, next shotgun uh, question. So there's been uh, floating around the idea of, you know, lowering the voting age to 16. I'm not on board with that. But should there be a, like, when kids turn 16 they have to, like, fill out some type of, um like, pr- pretty much getting the process started with their voter ID card and while that, like, learning about, you know, actual civics and how to be civically engaged um, so that when they turn 18, they get their voter ID card and we don't have to worry about, oh, you need identification. Well, they already have it.
0: Well, I feel like there should just be automatic voter registration when you turn 18 in general. I mean, as far as, like, so are you thinking, like, they would take a class or something like that?
1: Yeah, just include it in, like, make it like driver's training, essentially. So something that they, you know, do either after school or, you know, on the weekends or something like that. They do it. They fill out a form. They...
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'd have to, I definitely think it should be as easy as possible for people to vote in general. I'm always in favor of, like, expanding the electorate in that way, but I don't, as far as, like, make them take a class, I don't know if you're ever going to, like, get people on board to do something like that, because then the question becomes, like, I mean, you can teach a civics class, like, fine, but, like, there's so much drama, like, when you go from, like, state to state, as far as, like you know, what is actually taught, like, when it comes to, like, I guess, like, civics and history, and, like, what isn't, and, like, you go to, like, red states, and, like, they'll be, they'll sometimes learn things that would just be completely different than people in other states would, so I feel like, I feel like you would get into a lot of drama with the states if you tried to require, if you tried to require some sort of class, but, I mean, in general, like, probably just make it as easy as possible for people to vote.
1: Make it a part
0: of testing.
1: Like make it a was um, what the federal government does a little bit more in depth than what you actually get in history class. What your state and local government do, and like the different positions that you're generally going to vote for, and then like defining things like this is what a mill is and this is what it means. You know, things of that nature, things that you're going to see on the ballot. Let us and you know, this is what you're doing and this is what you're affecting.
4: I'm always in full support of the Department of Education stepping up and doing what I imagine it was built to do. Um, but oh, I do think Chris is. Like,
1: what? Not with Betsy DeVos as the head of it. Hey, don't
4: disrespect our Grand Rapids homegirl. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you love that. Uh, Guys, guess what the name of one of our campuses was?
4: <laughs> was it named after? Yeah, it's not-
1: yeah, it was
0: the boss. Probably, yeah, she probably donated. Fa- if her family's who rich, they probably donated money, I'm assuming, something like that. It's not but, her family. It's her husband's family. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. But
4: I do, I do agree with what Chris said of the broad discrepancies that come state to state. I think what the federal government could do is make that a part of your standardized testing. Everyone has to take some type of standardized testing to go into college all of us talked about how high school was the moment that we were able to get political why don't we take that opportunity in that space to educate a little bit talk about the basis of what the federal federal government is what elections look like when elections are what primaries and all of that stuff is based on your space and have it be a small section of your act or sat or whatever standardized thing you take
1: Yeah, instead of it being an essay, that random arbitrary essay, how about, like, ten questions on that?
3: I tend to, like, have a lot of conflicting opinions about this because I do think there should be a class, but I also worry that accessibility to, like, non-revisionist information or like actual real information about what's happening and factual things would get lost in the mix. Um, for instance, I took AP government and when I took that class, my, my teacher in high school, he was really, I thought, very balanced and um, very like honest about how this, the system was created. And what it does but I think a lot of students because they came from very like either very like polar conservative like very very conservative families or otherwise like would really challenge him in class and so mm-hmm. it was it was interesting dynamic because I thought that it got a lot of students engaged but I do fear that if you did have a teacher who let's say what was like me and you know like just took this idea who like you can brainwash children and tell them how to feel about certain things you know like I it really depends on I think who the teacher is and it depends on like how you actually test these things is it strictly just like how voting and government and what the party stand for and how all that stuff works or is it like how the theories of things work so I think I would have a I would be hesitant to put something in place where it gives people too much discretion, which that sounds terrible. But I <laughs> kind of think like you have to be careful with things that are so important like this. I do think it's better than better to have it than not. But I do think that it would require some kind of like... Uh, like, I don't know webinars are kind of boring Sometimes but like maybe like a webinar For high school students that they're all required to do Like I don't know <laughs> but I think it would be cool If there was something
1: Any any other closing thoughts
4: On this topic or in general
1: On that topic <laughs> Alright next two questions Are uh, Related so Um should fel- uh, felons have the ability to vote in prison? And alternatively, should, if, you know, if that's a no, should they be able to vote once they have served their time?
3: I personally have a lot of feelings about this as well, but I think, like, I think that... Um, my understanding of the debate versus where i stand as somebody who works um with folks who've been accused of crimes and people who are currently serving time i think that uh, um to answer the second question i absolutely do think that once people have served their time they should be able to vote i think that um disenfranchising folks after you know they've served their time they've you know done what they were supposed to do they have dealt with the consequences of whatever their actions allegedly were like they should have the ability to participate in society again and i think that the issues of mass incarceration racism and disenfranchisement are all like very interconnected and and we disenfranchise specifically populations um of like men of color specifically and women of color as well when we like haven't addressed the issues of like over policing and mass incarceration of communities of color and then like uh you know putting folks in jail for things that are menial and then not allowing them to vote um but i think that my opinion on letting people who are serving time vote may actually be more controversial because I actually do think that folks in serving time should be able to vote because I think that a lot of policies that are being put forward really do affect the human rights and like the um, quality of life of inmates. And um, I'll just give an example like in Orange County, uh, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of policies against inmates being able to have soap. So they can't actually, they have to go purchase soap with their commissary money and they have to, um, they can't have any access to hand sanitizer. And so when this pandemic is going on, it's like complete chaos and it's only exacerbated by local elected officials who think that this is like totally fine and they don't care. And so, um, I think that if we allowed, inmates to be able to vote and we allowed them to speak their mind and give them a voice even though um you know and i also am a prison abolitionist but that's a different topic but the (laughs) i think like if we did give them the opportunity to vote we would see a an interesting shift in the electorate and the way that we talk about certain things would be different and i think that that's really important because um I think that people deserve second chances and I do think they have a ability to participate in society and should be able to participate in society, even if they have, you know, done something wrong and are um, serving uh, time for the consequences of it.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think to a large extent, you know, the way that our country treats people who are incarcerated, is just like so far from like that very, you know, I feel like prison started as, like, very utilitarian, like, keep the dangerous people away, you know, so they don't hurt other people. But that's, we've just come so far from that, that, like, you know, to, to take away, like, all the rights of millions of people just, you know, on, like, a blanket statement, I, I think is hard, so... Um, I don't know. I mean, I would also be for like some kind of tiered system. Like if you want to, you know, the people with the most serious crimes, I don't know. I don't really need murderers to be voting, but like people in prison for like fucking like marijuana charges, I don't know. Like there are like levels of it, but yeah, I'm also generally people in prison voting because I don't think that people need to like lose their ability to like be people. And I mean, why wouldn't we want to encourage people to like have a stake in things and, you know
1: learn and you know so. well interesting you bring up marijuana because that's the next question should you know at state levels across the country marijuana is being uh, legalized yes the federal, sorry the federal, <laughs> the, the, the I'm, federal i'm sorry
0: I'm, so, I'm just sick of this debate like it's over <laughs> just legalize it throughout the country like it's over
1: <laughs> well, not should it be legalized, but when it is legalized, should those that are currently in jail be released and should their
4: record oh, yes. be expunged? Absolutely. Yes.
0: All right, Chris. So that was an easy one. Good job.
4: The fact that our drug laws put marijuana on the same status as cocaine and crack is reason enough that their um, record should be expunged and they should be released, and especially when you have people who are serving in serving and who are playing in the NFL, who are playing sports, who are coming out and saying up front and honest that they do it as a form of medical relief. That their PTs are prescribed, and you are serving time because you may have been pulled over for having a joint in your car. Absolutely. Sorry, I had a moment there. You
1: uh-huh.
2: <laughs> you all on
1: board. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's the. I mean, we we could go on night. It's not like we have any food, but uh, I'm I'm gonna cut it there. But um, thank you all for coming on. Uh, I'm gonna do like a last few. Uh, if you guys have any closing thoughts about what we've talked about, where you want the party to go, anything of that nature. Um, we didn't talk much about coronavirus, but that's such a rapidly evolving topic that if we release this in Three days it could be rapidly
0: different so that's yeah sure. that's uh, uh, I mean the coronavirus is it's such a big thing that like who knows what's going to happen
4: yeah yep.
0: who uh, knows
4: my question, though Chris you had if Trump won election but the Democrats have both chambers do they go for impeachment again
1: do, do you think they do and do they remove him
4: but like it's, it's a fun question.
0: But, like, it depends on what they actually try to impeach him on. I mean, they don't, like, there's so many things they didn't really go after him last time that they could, you know? I think the problem is that, like, he's just, he's, you know, he's quote-unquote, like, I mean, he's been impeached, but not removed, right? So I think the question is, like, politically, how does it look for the Democrats to go after him again? Because what the Republican, what the right would say is that, like, oh, you guys are just being petty because you don't like Trump, and you'll just kneecap him with anything. So it, you know, it's always a it's always a tough debate, I guess.
1: Alright. So, closing thoughts, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave you guys to arbitrary time of 40 seconds. I'm gonna start in reverse order that you guys introduce yourself. So, Uh, Terrell,
4: 40 seconds and go. Closing thoughts. Appreciative for this moment. Um, I think everything that was said here is exactly where the Democratic Party is and um, I'm excited to see where it goes. Okay. Nagin.
1: Um,
3: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I think that as a Muslim woman who has felt like there's really not been a voice and a space for us to be um, leaders. I think the Democratic Party has done a good job of uplifting Muslim women to be more active in politics. What I would like to see in the future, and I hope that this is some, a reality that we can see in the future, is that we do see women actually being elevated in the Democratic Party and supporters of the Democratic Party also uplifting them and also fighting for them to um, you know, take their space in the party. I wasn't necessarily a Warren supporter in this election, but I do hope that women like her and especially women of color come to the forefront um, and hopefully make the party better than what it is right now.
1: Maddie
2: Um yeah, I echo you guys. This was really fun. I think these conversations are always really important and they're going to continue to be as the identity of our party is sort of, you know, in crisis. So Your party. Um, What?
1: Your party.
2: I said our. Did I say our? What did I say?
1: Yeah, you said our. It's not my party.
2: Oh, sorry. Independence
0: yeah. for life, right, Chris? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I love my fence.
2: But I I think, you know, I think Democrats have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of like soul searching to figure out, you know, who we want to be, how we want to get that message across. Um, And I just really hope that we like, you know, this is like very corny, but I hope we just like keep our values and our love at the center of it and just kind of like find ourselves coming back to that Um, and sort of walking away from this like Trump's era with, with lessons that we, we do have, you know all the same values we might have different ways of getting there but um i think at the end of the day we want you know a better country for um everybody and so i think it's it's just important that we keep having the conversations and keep bringing it back to the things that are really important because i think our party has shown the ability to be energized and motivated and get things done and i think that's when we're at our best so we'll get there i have
0: have hope
1: all right and chris
0: so, am I just saying like what I think the Democratic Party should do? Is that the general,
1: what do you think it should do? General, or just our conversations.
0: Um. Okay. Yeah. No. I definitely enjoy this conversation. It's really cool getting to talk with you guys. Um. As far as the Democratic Party goes, um, I think there definitely should be a much higher focus on economic policy from the Democrats. I understand that. Hey, some people may have personal issues with like a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But their ideas that both of them ran on aren't going to go away regardless of what happens in this 2020 election. And I think that the party as a whole needs to have a central focus on, okay, what are going to be the tenant policies that we're going to push for and fight for? Because in my opinion, that's the only way that you keep the young progressive wing from either from leaving the party. Period. So, I mean, that is probably my, my biggest concern. And, and then also, just learning from the mistakes of like certain candidates that lost, why they lost, etc. And trying to make sure that um, those mistakes aren't repeated in future elections. And that goes for pretty much all the candidates. I think they've all... I think they all did things that hurt themselves, in addition to the systemic issues and biases that uh, kind of worked against them
1: okay well thank you all for um joining me on this thank you for agreeing to do it I enjoyed it uh I I think this went I I don't presume to say I knew everything that you guys were saying but I think this conver these conversation this conversation happened in a way that I wanted it to um it was all thoughtful debate and they want to bring up my snake emojis yeah yeah <laughs>
0: one
1: more snake uh so, yeah, so thank you again. Uh, if For the listeners, if you enjoyed this, let, uh, let me know what you think. When I release this, I am going to tag all these people in it, so if you have questions for them or you want to follow them on the various social media platforms that they're on, feel free to do so. Um, this has been your friendly neighborhood moderate signing off. Uh, I am Chris, and thank you for listening. Stay safe, wash your hands, don't lick toilet seats. Oh, my God.